this week, just some updates. What is it that Mac always says? Two steps forward, one step back. Well, this week we only charitably lean forward on a bunch of things. Pray we don't take that step back. We'll talk about Mill Creek, the West Edmonton Mall footbridge, noise, bike share, and parking, and we won't talk at length about any of them. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 39. If my mic is picking up some bird sounds behind me, that's because it's summer. The window Spring. is open. Enjoy yeah. it. Um, if a car zooms by... Uh, and accelerates really quickly, making a bunch of noise. Well, we're going to talk about why that happened and why it's city council's fault and not mine. But first, the rapid fire. This week, Mayor Don Iveson unearthed a time capsule in Fort Edmonton Park and had a media event showcasing some of the items inside. Some of those items included a City of Edmonton flag, a list of members of the Edmonton Historical Board from 1967, and to Jason Kenney's great frustration, a $1 bill. This was the gift that Kenny was planning to give Edmonton when Valley Line West funding came due, and now he's going to have to go all the way to dumb Dollarama to buy Edmonton their stupid train, to run through the stupid orange ridings to their stupid mall, which isn't even the biggest anymore. In transit news, an ETS driver was spotted helping a passenger carry her groceries to her house in a social media post that went viral. This caused ETS to move quickly for remedy, also installing some retractable operator shields on a select number of buses. These shields, while being great for repelling knives and fists, are also outfitted with a polarized mom-look coating that will block any guilt-tripping, haven't-done-the-dishes, I-work-so-hard-nobody-appreciates-me laser-focused eye beams. When we caught up with the passenger who now had groceries in her fridge, she let us know that she wasn't mad, just disappointed. Registered government lobbyist Post Media has hired former Kenny campaign director Nick Coolsbergen to lobby the government on how Post Media can be included in the energy war room. An inside tip, however, has revealed that the meeting was short and contributions from Post Media were deemed unnecessary. When asked to comment, Post Media replied via telescreen, There is no war room. War is peace. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. And you, dear listener, you get to participate in this section of the show this week because we've got a survey for you. It's the annual APN Listener Survey, and it's going to run until June 17th. You can fill it out at albertapodcastnetwork.com slash survey, and you'll be entered to win one of three $100 cash prizes. That's 100 times more than Don Iveson pulled out of his time capsule. Yeah, time capsule. Ooh, big Don Iveson gets a $1 bill. You can get $100. Three of you have the chance to do that. Why wouldn't you do this? Go to albertapodcastnetwork.com slash survey right now and fill it out. Plus, you'll be helping APN to better serve podcasters and listeners across the province. But cool $100 bills, yo. Gotta get those. We're still gonna read you an ad, though, while you're doing that survey. We got to get our cool $100 bills, yeah. We do. Park Power is a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who you buy your energy from, and Park Power has low overhead, and chances are you'll save money if you switch. You can find out how much you might save by visiting parkpower.ca and plugging your numbers into the Alberta Energy Savings Calculator. And if you do decide to switch, it's easy. Nothing changes about your service, only the price you pay. You can learn more at parkpower.ca. So this week, we said in the opening, we are not going to talk about anything at length, but 
it's one of those weeks where there's just a bunch of small updates to everything. And like you said, cancel, they're going on break next week. Right. So they don't really want to start any big news items. This and week. they've had some pretty big items in the previous weeks with Corezone and other things that have, you know, taken quite a lot of cycles. Yeah, they wanted Troy out of chambers so that they could finally go on vacation with a clear conscience. So we're going to start weirdly with the slow burn some of the stuff that we've been tracking for a long time and has started to come back and the first it harkens back to our teaser episode back last august it was west edmonton mall when they were doing some construction they demolished the 170th street pedestrian footbridge and decided they weren't going to put it back up this week uh, andrew knack he made a facebook post and some of the things that he said were one it was supposed to go to the subdivision development and appeal board there was a date set for June after it had already been delayed a couple times and why it was delayed became clear this week. It's because the city and WEM had reached a settlement and they have agreed that it should be reconstructed. So it's not done yet. And the financing is going to be part of some infrastructure package that they're planning in conjunction with West LRT, but it will be coming back. Yeah. So my read on this is we have WEM who said, nah, we're not going to we're not going to reinstall this footbridge. Our zoning bylaw says that we have to build this, but nah, we'll fight you on this. Right. And then they work out some sort of backroom deal with the city before it goes to SDAB. SDAB, which I'll note, would have made them build the footbridge. <laughs> right. And suddenly they're going to build a footbridge, but financing and construction times contingent on synergies with the West LRT. So my read on this is, WEM just got the city to pay for the footbridge. Right. Edmonton is paying for this footbridge through Valley Line construction. I mean, I guess if you're big enough to bully Edmonton, might as well bully Edmonton. But as a citizen of Edmonton, don't appreciate the bullying. It's amazing that WEM still has this power. But the other item that came back on our slow burn was Mill Creek Daylighting. And this was really what started the slow burn segment. Daylighting is the concept by which we're bringing the stream back to the surface. So when we were doing various traffic projects in the history, Mill Creek Ravine was one of the casualties. We rerouted the stream into underground passages that they're called culverts dropped into the river. And the result of that is the flow of the stream was less than it had been normally, and it was below the surface. So that had impact for salmon nesting grounds and fish and wildlife and the whole ecosystem. So daylighting is the idea that we bring that water back to the surface. There was a report that went to urban planning this week uh, that outlined three sections of the trails that have been damaged by erosion and, and plans to try to fix those. And as you say, um, there's a lot of stormwater being funneled down that creek. And uh, the, the plan to do something about this fell off the radar until Councillor Nickel brought it back. And what was interesting, though, this week, he was quoted in the journal saying that he is working on setting up a meeting with the province to discuss this. And that particularly caught my eye because, one, we know someone else, and we'll talk about this in a moment, someone else had a meeting with the province yeah. this week. Yeah. But Councillor Nickel, he's working on setting up a separate meeting with the province. And it made me wonder... The does, province who is now a UCP government. A UCP government, of which Mike Nickel is a failed candidate. He did as well in the UCP nomination election as I did running against him in Ward 11, <laughs> which is to say very, very poorly. But I wonder if he has an in with the UCP and maybe that's how he hopes to get this forward. It could also be that the only UCP MLA in Alberta that is in the Edmonton area is Casey Madu, who's also the municipal, municipal affairs. affairs. Yeah. So I think there's a possibility that maybe Nicola's hoping 
this is the flag that the UCP raises saying, we haven't forgotten about you, Edmonton. And this conveniently would go like right on Casey Medu's plate. Everyone's a happy kumbaya. We get some Mill Creek daylighting funding and Edmonton feels like their voice is being heard in the province. I suppose that could be a scenario, but I wonder why Councillor Nickel feels like this is his issue to champion. It's not outcomes and metrics. It's not lowering taxes. It's none of the things that he usually is keen to bring. It's grotesquely expensive. Like, I'm on board with daylighting. I think it's cool, and but I'm also, like, a left-wing liberal cuck. Like, it's, <laughs> it, it is on brand for me. But for Nickel, right. this is, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars just to have some more biodiversity. How does this align with Councillor Nickel's business focus? Let's right. get industry into Edmonton. We're losing our industrial partners to the counties. It's baffling. I think, personally... Nickel just wants this on the table because the problem we've had in the past is administration never brought back the funding package for Mill Creek Ravine daylighting. So Nickel couldn't vote no. <laughs> I think that's what this is. Or it's a that, way to get back at admin, right? Like, hey, you didn't do something you were supposed to do. Yeah. It's the knife a little bit more. Yeah. Nickel, I think he wants it on the table so that he can say no to it because if he doesn't say no to it, someone might accidentally say yes to it in the future. I guess we'll find out. We were talking about Nickel talking to the province, and I thought that was weird because our esteemed head of city council also talked to the provincial government this week. Yeah, Mayor Don Iveson met with uh, Premier Jason Kenney before the throne speech um, this week, and they had a conversation about many things, as you might imagine. They talked about housing and some other items that are important to the city. But in particular, Mayor Iveson was keen to find out about LRT funding. And he said in the election, the premier committed to the West LRT, which is great. So we want to nail that down essentially in writing. And the long and short of their conversation is that it was not nailed down in writing and he was not able to secure that definitively. And he says it'll be a continuing conversation with government. I'm flabbergasted here because this is the huge thorn in Jason Kenney's side during the provincial election is people say, well, you can't cut the carbon tax because of West LRT funding. It's going to fund the transit in this province, right? And he said, unquestionably, we are funding that project. Right. There was no equivocation whatsoever. The fact that he didn't write it down means that maybe my rapid fire earlier in the show was pretty prescient. Right. So, I mean, they're looking for some other different funding source, I imagine, behind the scenes, but nothing yet. I mean, Mayor Iveson described the meeting as overall positive. Oh, he would, though. And said the tone is that it continues to be supportive of the city's infrastructure priorities around LRT. But we're no closer to having that nailed down. This is the same mayor who wouldn't say anything bad about Trump because he didn't want to alienate a partner he might have to govern with. Iveson has never said anything bad about another order in government. But I will say that the fact that he even said we couldn't get that in writing in Iveson Speaks is like a blazing, fiery slight against Jason Kenney. That is the most aggressive we've ever seen Iveson be against. It's like putting it out there that, hey, it's not on us. This is on him. Yeah, definitely. So moving on again, like I said, get some whiplash because we are not sticking to one topic and we're going to talk about bikes. I had to put this in here because it's I just saw so many people tweeting about it this week. And I know that for you, you've been dealing with this for weeks now. But this letter that was in the Edmonton Journal on Wednesday called Who Wants to Share Bikes? It was written by Edmontonian Ian Coleman. And uh, there's a lot of standout lines. It's a very short letter. But the one that right at the beginning, I have never seen an adult on a bicycle in Edmonton who looked older than 25. 
I am 25, so I, I don't know how to feel about this off the bat. He continues, most of the people you do see on bicycles have that no money look. I know how to feel about that one. So if they can afford bicycles, then most people who really want a bicycle can just buy one. So he's kind of questioning bike sharing programs like uh, Lime and, and other things that might be coming to Edmonton this summer. I did like the follow-up uh, letter, which was in today, Thursday's journal. Hop on a bicycle for one day. You might find yourself looking and definitely feeling like you were 25 again. And this by a 50-plus nice. Edmontonian who rides a bike every day. And I like it. That That sums up the whole discussion. It's unfortunate because this is the prevailing understanding and the way we've talked about bike share because we rely on city council to pass regulation to allow bike share to occur. We don't want to have another Uber where they come in and flound bylaws and we have a whole clash between private industry. We want this to be a success. So that makes everyone feel like city council is driving the bus on this when that could not be further from the truth. Right, we they're have, being dragged along, really. I don't, know if, I don't know if the mics picked that one up, there but there was a car accelerating down that drag. Um, as I was saying, the private companies want to come to Edmonton. They have already signaled interest. They want to come here. They don't want any funding. They just want a regulatory framework that allows them to not get shut down in a year. Right. And that's what's not being made clear to the public in my eye, because this is private industry. This is the epitome of money saving. And if private industry fails, who cares? Yeah, we're not using civic money to set up a bike share. We're just passing some bylaws to allow a private company to do it. And and let me just say, I personally am really excited about a bike share. I think it'd be great. You know, I know I could probably buy a used bike for a relatively low amount, but in my mind, I'm lazy. And then I got to think about maintenance and locking it up when I get somewhere. And, and really all I want to do is use a bike to get from A to B when it's a bit too far to walk and not far enough to get on the bus and deal with that mess. And, and a bike share would be perfect for that. And that also leaves out the whole other segment of the population where bike share solves our last mile problem. You integrate this with ETS and you're able to bike from your home to the bus station and just leave your bike. Just leave it when you're done. Yeah, it's because brilliant. You can, and you can't buy a bike for that purpose because I've run into this a couple times. There's only two bike racks on each ETS bus. If you bike to a bus right. and then there's two bikes already on that bus, you're done. You can't get on the bus. You have to go find a different plan. So yes, the answer to your question, Ian, uh, who wants to ride bikes? A lot of people. Lots of us. We have 7 million visitors to Edmonton every year. These people would happily ride around on a bike. But it's inconvenient that that car outside wasn't right now because we're moving on to traffic noise. We should have recorded this at my place. I mean, the echoes off the buildings downtown, it happens all the time. So city council this week, finally, and I say finally with emphasis, decided to move forward on a noise solution. Is that the right characterization? Kind of. This is enforcement. Administration just wanted to gather more data. City council, they wanted to do something about the noise. So the report that came back this week about the vehicle noise mitigation plan talked about the pilot that was done last summer. It ran from August to November. They had measured the noise of vehicles at eight different locations around the city. And you remember they had these LED boards that people would drive by and intentionally go really loud to see what they kind of score they could get if they could get a high score. Who hasn't tried to get a high score speed on one of those digital speed boards? 
So administration said, uh, that only ran August to November. We think we need to run this pilot again over the summer months from May until August to gather data for that time of year. And we're not ready to do anything other than gather data. And council said, no, we're ready to do more than gather data. Emphatically, they said that. And they really were my spirit animals (laughs) this week because as you were discussing that, I was already cringing, ready to yell in the mic, no, just do something. Right. And council had that same perspective. Uh, it was really interesting. You had both Henderson and McKean get really fired up. You know, we've been working on that. And they're, of course, the White Ave and downtown councillors who disproportionately are probably hit hardest by yeah, this. Yeah, people racing up and down White Avenue or Jasper Avenue. Groat Road, too, is also Grote a really Road. bad one. Yep. There was a lot of fear from administration on this file. It was the justification is, oh, you know, if you record a vehicle, they're not able to identify which vehicle is making the noise, which I say I'm recording this on a hyper-directional mic. I'm pretty sure the technology exists. They also felt like uh, maybe the noise limit they had set, the 85 decibels, wasn't the right limit because certain emergency vehicles and maintenance vehicles will trip that. Other vehicles don't. So again, they had this confusion about who's loud and who's not. Interesting side note. Did you know that every time a police officer gets caught speeding or by photo radar, they have to like go through a large report process to justify whether they were responding to a call and whether speeding was justified? And if it wasn't, they have to pay the ticket? That's interesting. So you mean when they turn on their lights and sirens to go through an intersection and then turn it off again? Yeah, or if they get caught by a photo radar truck on the Henday going 120 kilometers an hour. This was actually a pretty big issue last year where EPS officers were often just paying their photo radar fines because the bureaucracy and the paperwork required to to make a reasonable claim for I was doing my job was actually just too much work to be worth it for them. That's crazy. Uh, So on that, city admin, I suppose, is doing the same sort of justification. But here's the thing. A police car, it's got some flashy lights. It's got some different signs. Ambulances, fire trucks, those are all easily identifiable vehicles. And a human has to be issuing these tickets. So just don't issue them to emergency vehicles. Right. City administration, they're letting perfect be the enemy of good. Yeah. There's the possibility for a solution, but it's not a perfect solution, so they don't want to pursue it. I'd propose to city administration, have you ever even done a good solution? Has anything turned out good? Let's not aim for perfect. Let's just aim for done and then get the status quo out there. And that's what council voted to do. They want them to send out peace officers to accompany this recording equipment and start issuing tickets. So as you say real people next to this equipment measuring sound to actually hand out some tickets. And I think that would be amazing because I've never seen anyone get a ticket for making noise and speeding down the road. So the ticket is $250 if you violate the city bylaw. And I love Councillor McKean's quote. I mean, it's on, on pun brand, right? He said, citizens are frustrated and have had it up to their ears. I guess it's not a pun, but you know what I mean. It's almost a pun because, you know, you've had it up to here. Yeah, it works. It's, it is a city council level pun. Yeah. I thought it was especially interesting, though, because we're talking about this inability to enforce based on bylaws that don't exist or based on, you know, some weird justification that isn't clear to the public. Groat Road Bridge, which you'll remember we've talked about in the past, still has a sign up that says dismount and walk or you get a hundred dollar fine. This sign was put up arbitrarily by city administration. We know that it was put up without just cause, and that city administration did it unilaterally against the wishes of at least two members of city council, it is still up 
And they are still, I don't know if they're actually issuing the fines, but according to city administration, they are enforcing this. That would require a person being there. (laughs) It would indeed. I just find it baffling that we're so willing to throw up a sign and arbitrarily ticket people for really no adequately explored reason, but we're not willing to ticket people who are in cars. Hmm. Go figure. Is this the war on cyclists? I'm going to hashtag it. (laughs) While we were planning this episode, we were sitting in this room and we're saying, oh my God, nothing interesting has happened. I'm like, Mac, go through the council records and just tell me what happened. Maybe we'll mine some something interesting there. And you mentioned something that you initially passed over that I bumped on. Right. So there was a few other reports that just didn't seem that interesting. So one was about the corner store program and another was about the facade improvement program and the development incentive program. So together, these three programs are part of the city's efforts to improve business in mature neighborhoods and uh, provide support to those businesses. There was a proposed policy for the corner store program. So council during the last budget cycle had approved funding for this, but there was no policy in place for how to spend it. So that was the point of that. And then there was a review done of the other two programs and they made some recommendations. Administration uh, brought forward some recommendations on things to improve, but they're all pretty minor. And council basically, or committee, I guess this week, basically just approved all of those things. But you wanted to talk about facade improvement. I can understand why you think that would be uninteresting. And that's because it's presented in a very uninteresting way. It was. That is a crime, in my opinion, because inclusive of bike lanes, inclusive of the funicular, all these great urban planning initiatives that I enjoy. I think unquestionably the single greatest program and the best thing we're doing for our city is the corner store and facade improvement program. I think this is number one, the best thing we have done in the past decade. And you don't have to walk five blocks from where we're recording this to see it because Richie Market Yep. And the mall beside with Yumi's Hair Salon and the Blue Chair Cafe and the new bakery and pharmacy. Right. And then across the street at the professional center. These are all places that didn't exist four years ago. That corner where Richie Market is, where Acme Meat Market and Bira, an award-winning restaurant is, used to be a gravel parking lot with a dilapidated old building that had Stampadoodle on the side. No one knows what Stampadoodle was. It was lost to time and memorial. But Richie and Hazeldean and 76 Ave are winning awards. The people are coming here en masse. And this neighborhood, single-handedly, because of those developments, which were the corner store and facade improvement programs. And development incentive, potentially. And a bit of development incentive. The project wouldn't have happened without this program. This program started this project. And that's huge. This is a mature neighborhood that have people coming back en masse to live and densify in this area. Mm -hmm. On top of it, what's currently being constructed in spring 2019, it's the last step, which is the public realm improvements associated with this corner store program. So they're actually taking the area outside the professional center. They're installing some benches, some bike racks, some, you know, like community minded decorative traffic lights all on an extended curb at the four-way stop. And it's like this great place to just mingle around the Richie Four Corners. It's an urbanist utopia, and we're not talking about it. And I think that's a crying shame. I think it's just like all these other programs that the city does, when we see massive successes, we don't advertise it, and we don't 
connect the programs that we've made with these smashing success stories. Yeah, we have to connect the dots and tell those stories. Like, I mean, I read this report on the Corner Store program and I saw that it was Newton and Elmwood, Ritchie, Calder, Belvedere, Patricia Heights, but it didn't clue into me. Well, I'm in Ritchie all the time. That's where we come here to record pretty much. Yeah. Uh, what might have been impacted by this program? I, you know, it didn't, didn't cross my mind to look that up. It also didn't cross the mind of anyone in the media because when I brought this up, you're like, oh, well, let's look for some media. No one wrote about this. Nope, no story. You know, the media there, they have to take what council gives them. And when council gives them a boring nothing report, no one's going to pick up on that. All this free advertising, this free publicity, this good news story was lost because administration wanted to be boring. And I think that's a shame. Uh, so that's why I wanted to talk about that. Yeah, no, that's great. And the other one that was in the news recently was the Petroleum Mall, which also benefited from uh, these programs. Uh, and I know Councillor Walters was pretty happy about that. There's a new restaurant open up, uh, opened up over there. So it is starting to have an impact throughout the city, as you say. We've got time for one last topic of the day, and I think we should make it an $11,000 parking fight. Because Let's do it. Why wouldn't we? So what happened this week? Elise Stolte wrote a couple of columns, and one of them was about an $11,000 legal bill that residents have incurred to secure a two-hour parking restriction as a trial along the Canterbury side of 141st Street. So a few weeks ago or a couple of weeks ago, we told you that council uh, voted to eliminate parking minimums for off-street parking. So in private parking, there's, you know, we're going to go down this road of leave it to the market to decide. And in this case, um, you know, there's been a development here that has gone into the neighborhood that doesn't have the parking associated with it that it might have in the past. And residents are complaining because it's going to take up more of their on-street parking. So Edmonton has about 50 zones where we have this sort of residence-only parking. And the question that Elise raises in this article is whether or not we should do that. Does that make sense? She says, is it fair to grant special access to a public street to some homeowners and deny it to local businesses or anyone living in higher density residential or someone in a senior's home? And she kind of basically says like, good luck, council. This is going to be a fight for you to have. And she says, you know, on-street parking will fall victim to the tragedy of the commons, which is what, you know, these residents are fighting about. Oh, I couldn't care less about these residents' concerns at all. So... As we're recording this, I'm across the street from the Gerald Zetter Care Center, which, right. granted, the Gerald Zetter Care Center across the street from me does have a parking lot. Staff still park on my street all the time. Yeah. And you know what I do about it? And it has a big parking lot, too, actually. Yeah. You know what I do about it when staff parks in front of my house? Absolutely nothing. It's not my parking stall. Yeah. I, I don't love the precedent that this is setting, where, one, you can get people together who have money, because $11,000 in legal bills ain't cheap, and... You can get resident-only parking. And like you said, this is not uncommon. We have 50 of these zones, but it's it's not common either. So this is something that people are learning is a solution to this problem. If you want to take the parking in front of your house and keep it just for you, the city will do that for you. And that's mutually exclusive with our elimination of parking minimums. No doubt, yeah. And the other thing that's crazy about this to me is, at least judging by Elisa's column, Canterbury Court, this, this dementia facility, they've been pretty open to trying to find a solution here. Uh, and they say that the residents have just been really polarized. I mean, they met with the community league. They are working with a nearby church to look after their parking lot in exchange for getting access to some of their parking. It's not like they're like, you know, mad about this and we're going to take all your on-street parking. They're trying to find a solution here. And these residents have not been willing to play ball. So one of the things that was mentioned in this parking debate when it was coming up 
in previous weeks was that, you know, a culture change can't happen overnight. If we're changing to a culture of shared parking, that won't happen overnight and there will be some friction points. I wonder if this is the best way to handle those friction points, however, because this isn't a sort of like shared solution. It's basically broadcasting parking on this street is for residents only, which is not the shared parking approach that we're going to. Because just like we saw a couple of years ago when there was the fervor across the city for restrictive covenants right. on land, once it gets out that there is a legal recourse for this developmental change that the city is proposing, suddenly that legal recourse becomes very popular and you start having lawyers advertise, I can provide this service for you, and it becomes a broad sort of hysteria of getting on board with this. I wouldn't be surprised uh, as this parking debate goes forward that we have communities all over Edmonton getting together and organizing their own legal challenges to this parking problem. And to be fair, council did ask administration for, you know, when they bring that report back for details on how we can mitigate this sort of tragedy of the commons with on-street parking if we go down this road of eliminating minimums. Um, I did want to highlight, too, that Elise put in one of my favorite things in her column. She says, high-rise residents are paying more per acre in taxes than people living in low density. So why should the low-density residents get this perk? And as you say, $11,000 is not a, a small legal bill, but to buy the parking spot in front of your house is not too bad. Yeah, they sell for a lot more than that downtown. I know plenty of downtown residents who bought their parking stalls for about $42,000. Right. So that's addressing the tragedy of the commons. But the real tragedy is when you have an uncommonly smart idea and you can't boost it right to the top. Well, ATB Booster, they've got you covered. ATB Booster is a unique way to crowdfund and support local businesses and get special offers from the participating companies. Designed by Albertans for Albertans. You can learn more about this at atbbooster.ca. And if you didn't see me sneak that ad right in there, ooh, pristinely, you did not know you were part of a marketing machine. But that's our relationship on Speak Municipally. Don't, don't think that we're <laughs> friends. This is a commodity, dear listener. That was nicely done. Before we close, I want to ask you about something. You're speaking at an event coming up here in June. I am. Uh, so I'm... Very poor at advertising myself, which I'm glad you put this in. I'm speaking at the Pecha Kucha Night uh, at the Metro, the Garneau Theater, the Metro Cinema. Both are the same thing. Yeah. The one on 109th Street by the university. It's June 13th. Uh, I believe it's at 7 p.m. Tickets are available at edmontonnextgen.ca. Basically a Pecha Kucha. It's a talk format where you have 20 slides each lasting 20 seconds and can be only images so a total talk time of six minutes 40 seconds about an interesting topic to you and you're up first i am up first and what is your topic my topic is don't run for public office okay and i've had the people at next gen ask me uh point blank is this talk satire? We can't figure it out. Like, you're not actually going to tell people not to run. They're probably thinking to themselves. They're really worried, right? They want young people to run for office. Uh-huh. And uh, we'll we'll see if it's satire or not. <laughs> but based on the history of this podcast, I can't envision it's satirical. Uh, so if you want to come see me, I can come say hello at the break. Do it. Uh, tickets right now are two for $30 as an early bird discount. So, you know go get your tickets edmontonnextgen.ca but that's all for this week uh until next week i'm troy i'm mac and we're speaking, speaking municipally, municipally.